Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in November of 2019, I speak with Daniel Thorson. Daniel is an amazing young man, and he has a podcast called Emerge, uh, making sense of what's next. And even though he's about the age of my son, I consider him an older brother on the podcast path. He is absolutely gifted. And so I encourage you to check that podcast out. He's also with the Monastic Academy, which uh, I'll read from their website. It says, a, a center for training wise, powerful, and loving leaders who are an unstoppable force for social and environmental movements. Enjoy this conversation. Daniel, what a delight to have this official conversation in this post-doom series. I, I just greatly enjoyed the getting to know each other call back a couple months ago. And um, one of the things I'd love to do uh, at the start here, before we get into the kind of questions that I've been asking, you know, all the guests in this, in this series, um, I'd love to have you introduce yourself uh, because some people won't have read you. They're not familiar with your podcast. And uh, mm -hmm. so help us sort of, you know, don't be your normal humble self, like actually share with us. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let sure. us know who you are, what you're, what you're committed, you know, what you're, what you're particularly passionate about or interested in these days. Yeah, sure. So my, I think my biography will be a little bit less lengthy, lengthy than some of your guests. I'm, I'm 32 years old, so I haven't um, you know, accomplished too much yet. Uh, and uh, I guess the, the, the two strands of my life that I can kind of point to that are probably relevant for this conversation are the work I've done in social and systems change movements vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Occupy Wall Street and cooperative housing, uh, you know, and, and creating various communities. Um, taking part in various communities. And then uh, the kind of more spiritual side where I've lived for about now, oh my gosh, five years in kind of intensive meditation communities, mostly in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. Um, and I currently live at a place called the Monastic Academy in Lowell, Vermont. It's like very far north in Vermont, right at the Canadian border, uh, where it's kind of like trying to figure out what is a monastery for the modern world and which I love that inquiry. Um, it's really alive for me. And then I also probably the reason I'm on this podcast with you now, the reason that we were introduced is because I myself have a podcast called Emerge, where, uh, you know, essentially I started it off as an inquiry that was something like, you know, the world feels really broken. And I don't really know what to do about that or how to think about that. Let's talk to people who seem to have some idea. And I would just sort of like follow my nose, follow the eros, follow the curiosity that was alive, you know, day to day, week to week. I would read a book that really captured my, my heart, my soul. And I would, you know, email, I'd find the email for the person and be like, hey, you want to be on a podcast? And for some reason, that's persuasive to people in today's world. And they would go on a podcast and I would get to talk to this person I admired for an hour and a half. And, um, you know, those conversations apparently have, have resonated with people. It's, the podcast's audience has grown. And in the process, I have kind of um, come to a sort of understanding or vision of the state of play of the world and the phase shift that is coming at us, whether we like it or not. And I think that's, uh, those conversations are probably why we were connected, you know, speaking with people like Jem Bendel and Vinay Gupta and Daniel Schmachtenberger, 
people who are really uh, sounding the alarm in, in various ways about what we're doing to the biosphere, what we're doing to really all the systems that make our civilization function. I'm, I'm curious, have you, have you had yet, I only learned about this person maybe uh, two weeks ago, Barbara Cecil sent me uh, uh, an article that uh, Bayou Kamalafi Yeah, wrote. I have. Oh, he's beautiful. One of my yeah. favorite guests I've ever had. You know, because uh, when, when you said, you know, sounding the alarm, I, I love, certainly that's what's needed, but also beyond that, part of this post-Doom series, is it's not just sounding the alarm, because really, as Bio Kamalafi says, you know, the times are urgent, let us slow down, you know? Yeah, indeed. And uh, it, panic is not, or uh, even, even a sense of, of uh, urgency isn't necessarily what's needed now because urgency implies that if we all, if there's enough of us that get together and do this one thing or these few things, then dot, 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 we can avoid the kind yeah. of, you know, um, Yeah, yeah, it's almost more like, I, maybe I would say like turning on the check, the collective check engine light, you know? Like uh, we, 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 we ought to all know, we ought to all recognize that the fundaments of our civilizational operating system are broken. And we need to do something about that, or at least we need to respond to that. And that might mean slowing down. That might be the appropriate response. It might mean sinking into presence and going and living in a monastery. Yeah. But in any case, there needs to be an opportunity for people to live in relationship to this huge possibility and probability, perhaps. What's inevitable? And then um, given what seems to be inevitable or, or highly likely, um, how can we live our lives and have the best quality lives, the best quality relationships, the best quality communities, uh, wherever that is for us, hmm. and the most soul-nourishing ways to wake up and go to sleep hmm. each day, doing what we can, where we can, and at what scale we can, because there's yeah. no shortage of meaningful work. It's right. just that if your work, if you still think it's about saving industrialism from the consequences of its own actions, well, then right. you're going to be frustrated. Uh, right. And right. Well, and that's something that, so I went to, uh, I know that you've connected with Joe Brewer. I went to his workshop in Costa Rica and that was one of the questions, right? Was that it's sort of like, what is passing? What in particular is passing away? Right. Cause it's not, I think the, 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 the thing that I see with a lot of my peers who I talk to about this topic, it's like collapse becomes this almost like uh, binary zombie apocalypse where it's like collapse and then poof, everything is just gone. It's like this, this just right. turning over of everything. But actually, as you say, there's opportunities in this that I think we'd be wise to take, avail take advantage of. Yeah. What language do you use or have you used? What do you find most helpful in terms of when you speak and when you think for yourself about these contracting and deteriorating times? Yeah, I, tend now to use the um, a couple different terms. One is the meta-crisis. Oh, meta-crisis. Right? So, I yeah, like that. Nobody's meta-crisis is, is a, the kind of collection of crises that we're now facing. Yeah. Um, the bundle. <laughs> and the, bund uh, <laughs> and uh, the other is phase shift, right? And that leaves it ambiguous whether we're going to phase shift into a higher order of complexity or into a lower order of complexity, but that there's an inevitable phase shift that's, that we're coming upon. Uh, I appreciate that because it doesn't then sort of uh, bias the interpretation of what's, what's happening. It still allows us to participate in it.
yeah. into existence. Yeah. 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 I like that. I mean, I, I personally don't think that there's any possibility of a larger order of complexity only because one of the things I've been studying for the last six years is energy and ecology. Mm. And there's always a, an upper limit to complexity before you start reading the energetic limits. But nonetheless, I like the, the sort of subtle ambiguity of phase shift. That's, that's, that's that, that, So the, the, your reading of energy systems suggests that we could not achieve a higher order complexity civilization. Correct. Yeah, because uh, uh, we're already into, uh, we're already more than a decade into the uh, dirtier, harder to get, much more expensive, and much more uh, polluting um, aspects of dense concentrated energy. And there's no other place in the solar system, uh, you know, people talk about mining other, you know, asteroids and stuff like that. There's no, we there, there's all there's a limit every planet has a limited amount of dense concentrated energy mm -hmm. that could be used and we've we're now into the much more difficult hard to get stuff and yeah. it turns out that there's an energy per capita one of the uh, white's law in biology talks about that the complexity of any system is uh, uh, integrally tied to its energy use per capita and so we're now in a decreasing energy per capita. And so there will be a decreasing energy and it's, it's as solid as the second law of thermodynamics. Hmm. Hmm. Where, where, do, where can I read more about that? Um, uh, there was a guy, Sid Smith, Connie, literally just three or four, five days ago, just within the last week, we watched uh, Sydney, I think it's B. Sydney Smith did an hour long presentation um, I will send you the link and I'll put the link uh, yeah. in the, uh, in the, in the um, description box uh, of this as well. But that's fabulous. Also, Nate Hagens. Uh, Nate has a Reality 101 course hmm. that he uh, teaches students, fresh, uh, you know, it's an honors level course, uh, honor student uh, course at uh, University of Michigan, I mean, hmm. University of Minnesota. Hmm. And he covers energy just deeply. It's energy. It turns out that one of the things that none of us have learned in our families, our churches, our synagogues, hmm. our, you know, uh, spiritual communities, uh, nor anywhere else about energy and how e ecosystems, hmm. how ecology works. Hmm. Hmm. And that's, that's the piece. Uh, the, the most significant authors in that field, without a doubt, uh, would be William Catton, and his book, Overshoot, The Ecological Basis huh. of Revolutionary Change. And, and, and so is your sense after learning all of this, and I mean, I, I'm, I feel like I, I almost want to, can I ask you questions? Is that what sure, you're Sure, absolutely. Okay. Right. Um, is that there's no shred in you that senses that we might sort of thread the eye of the needle here and graduate into a more elegant civilizational design that's actually more beautiful, sustainable, and, you know, fully planetary. No, there's no shred in me. There's not no one shred. on a scale of zero to a hundred. I'm a zero on the possibility. Uh, of that. Huh. Um, and that comes from literally spending 30 to 40 hours, sometimes 50 hours a week over the course of the last seven years, studying mm. ecology and energy mm. and the rise and fall of civilizations. How was it for you growing up? And then how did you make whatever shifts you made to the worldview that you now hold? Yeah, so I definitely was raised, I think, even just through osmosis with a kind of sense of infinite growth, infinite progress. And as soon as I graduated college and started to live in a city, I lived in Washington, D.C., 
I had, I had recently started meditating and I was sensitive enough that I think I could just like feel in my body that something was off about like cities. And I couldn't articulate it like intellectually. I didn't have a theory of why that was, but I, there was like something inhuman about it or unnatural. Uh, and, <laughs> and I left the city and I, 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 I went and lived in a meditation center and eventually encountered the work of somebody who was talking about peak oil. And so I got really into peak oil for a while. And then that didn't work out. Like peak oil apparently didn't happen. And so for a while, I had like five years where I was like, oh, maybe I was wrong. Like maybe we can keep going. Maybe it's all chill. I can get a job at a software company. And, you know, I did. I kind of like played the millennial dream of a decent job at a and making enough money and living in a nice place. I lived in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I did that for a while, but then through the conversations I had on my podcast, I became, it became clear to me that, uh, that was an illusion that the way that I was attempting to live was basically putting my head in the sand and it was ignoring the reality of what time it is on the planet. And so in order to be right with myself, I had to move back to the monastery and really like, you know, in whatever way I could live in accordance with that understanding of what we're doing to the planet and what is real, I suppose. Um, and yeah, and so that's kind of where I find myself now. I, I'm still, maybe I haven't read Overshoot, so I don't, I don't have the same kind of certainty you have. And I, I haven't done the research, you know, I've talked to people in podcasts and I, I have an intuitive sense of like, yeah, the impossibility of the way that we're doing things, the civilization that we have now. But I also do retain some kind of like hope or that's not even hope is the right word. It's like trust or willingness to be surprised by humans and by nature like that there's a sense of i don't know what's going to happen more than there is a sense of doom anymore i, I had a sense of doom for a, a while I actually moved back to the monastery being kind of carried by that sense of doom but now when i check in there's wonder and there's a sense of like whoa what is going to happen like stuff is getting crazy what's going to happen and there's uh, interest and amazement and curiosity. Um, but uh, not, no certainty here. Yeah, well, I'm a thousand percent with you in terms of the cultivation and the grounding oneself in trust, mm. uh, woe, like awe, sort of being awestruck. Um, wonder, interest, uh, curiosity. I love those. And that's where I stay most of the time. You mentioned peak oil. One of the greatest marketing uh, successes uh, in uh, recent decades uh, is the uh, very successful uh, campaign to discredit peak oil, even though it isn't and didn't get discredited. I mean, it's, it's actually as real as ever. We're, we're over 10, you were 11 years or 12 years, depending on how you count it, 
into uh, peak oil, into peak uh, conventional petroleum. Sure. I mean, when I say that, uh, I was more referring to the fact that the, 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 the book that I read suggested that like 2012, 2013, everything would just sort of start to fall apart. Oh, no, I, exactly. Right? No, there were many people who were speaking from a peak oil perspective. And and, and even more, yeah, more than that, like, I remember following Daniel Pinchbeck. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, yes. but uh -huh. know, the return of Quetzalcoatl and the whole 2012 mythology, like I kind of, there, there is, there was a feeling in me, and I actually see this in a lot of my peers, like millennial peers, of being like, fool me once, you know, with yeah. regards to eschatologies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then we're like, okay, yeah. may, maybe, you know, and, and so there's this kind of like suspicion of takes on it, like especially certainty, right? Like, Absolutely. Uh, you know, who, how do you know? Like these things are so big, they're so complex, like right. people will figure out a way through it. Um, and yeah, for better or for worse, that's kind of like, when I talk to people in my age, they're kind of like, well, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And that skepticism is well-earned and, uh, is advised. I mean, I, I, one of the, again, I come back to my favorite authors, people like John Michael Greer, who I've read mm -hmm. 15 or 14 of his books, and he is relentless on, uh, in fact, he wrote a whole book called Apocalypse Not, mm -hmm. uh, uh, everything you know about Nostradamus 2012 and the rapture is wrong. Mm. And he takes a look at the history of apocalyptic thinking from when it was first introduced 3,200 years ago um, in Persia. At, and he takes a look at all these different cultures and believing the end of the times. And mm. so, yeah, I mean, the only, to my mind, the only meme or the only set of projections that's been more inaccurate mm. than uh, anticipated end of the world, doom, is anticipated um, and projections and claims of techno-utopia. I mean, that, that would probably mm. be the only thing that would be yeah. more in error yeah. uh, or more examples of, uh, well, that didn't happen. You know, I'm still waiting for my jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I, I, anybody watching or listening to this, I recommend William, I mean, uh, I, I recommend um, Richard Heinberg's book, Afterburn. Uh -huh. Society Beyond Fossil Fuels, because Richard really is uh, uh -huh. probably the elder or certainly one of the great elders uh -huh. in this field uh -huh. of uh, understanding energy. And, and yeah. he also counts Catton's Overshoot as one of the most important books he's ever uh -huh. read. Youngquist, uh -huh. The Odessa, uh -huh. same thing. Uh -huh. But his little book, uh, which I also recorded the audio, it's available free up on, uh, up on uh -huh. uh, SoundCloud. Uh -huh. But um, Afterburn, Society Beyond Fossil Fuels, really, uh, he, he even talks about, he says, let's take a look at how well I did back in 2004 with my first book on peak oil, the party's over. And he mm. takes a look at the major claims there and sort of reassesses them. And so, well, it's, so it's what, what's your, I mean, you're far more into this world than I am. You know, I, I'm more responding to it, I think intuitively and with my own, uh, just sort of like how I just made a major life decision, right. To move back to yeah. the monastery. But like, what are you, I mean, you've, you're, you've, you said you've had 40 conversations in this area so far. Like what, are you seeing as realistically plausible like near-term futures like I, or i guess the question that i used to ask to people on my podcast i'd be curious to know what you think it's like uh, if you were talking to you know some person around my age or younger like how would you suggest that they think about their future given what you know yeah, well, given the fact that my children are your age, I've got a 36-year-old daughter, a 34-year-old son, and a 29-year-old daughter who just informed me a month ago that she's pregnant. Mm. 
Mm. And, uh, and I also have an eight-year-old granddaughter. So this is a great question. Uh, but this particular podcast is mostly me asking you questions. So I'd be happy to be interviewed uh, in your podcast. And I will, I will say this, that I, I, I'm kind of very close to Jim Bendel. Um, collapse of complex dissipative structures is absolutely guaranteed. It's 100% inevitable. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's difficult because certainty is relationally toxic. And so I, I, I hesitate to say mm. that with that kind of certainty because that sort of stops the conversation. It's sort of arrogant. It's, it's just mm. hubris. Mm. And, so, and yet, it's not, you know, if somebody were to have a conversation with me and say, well, no, the earth doesn't go around the sun. The sun goes, goes around the earth. Uh, you know, mm. you, gotta, you need to have some epistemic humility around that. Mm. Well, no, mm. uh, actually, there are mm. certain things that I use the word God and reality interchangeably. There are certain things mm. that reality, to speak mythically, God mm. has revealed to us through evidence that are totally compelling and it would be false mm. humility to say otherwise. And one of them is that complex dissipative structures, complex systems of any kind, uh, uh, there's a limit to complexity and the limit is determined by energy and ecological factors, other uh, ecological uh, sort of uh, limits, uh, mm -hmm. such as Leibig's law of the minimum. That the, you know, anyway, I don't want to get into that. But to answer your question, I see collapse not as something that could happen, might happen, won't happen. Collapse is 30 years already ongoing. I mean, most, mm -hmm. most of your life. I mean, basically since, depending upon where you started, but certainly the mid-70s to mid-80s, We've yeah. seen collapse of, and really in some systems, collapse since the 1950s of the ecosystem. So if you look at the water, yeah. the fisheries, the uh, other species, the insects, if you look at carbon in the atmosphere, you, I mean, all of these earth-centered, life-centered yeah. measures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, in, that's very clear to me, too. I think that, that we are already into collapse. And it's a, it's a stair step, and there's partial recovery. So that's the way that virtually all civilizations, city-based civilizations, and a city is almost by definition a human ecosystem that has overshot the carrying capacity of its region. So it needs to draw on resources from outside to sustain. And so that collapse is already ongoing and there will be, you know, some larger downturns and then some shorter ones and there'll be partial recoveries. That's mm. why John Michael Greer's theory of catabolic collapse is one of the most elegant. He talks mm. about catabolic collapse, which mm. is societies overextend what they can afford to maintain mm. and they start feeding on themselves. Mm. I mean, that's what the Rust Belt is in the United mm. States. The Rust Belt is that since 1970, the United States has been post-peak oil mm. and we are now catabolic we're eating ourselves to death mm. and that's just what civilizations that's what city-based unsustainable civilizations do mm. so for me that is knowing that my children and grandchildren are going to have as long as they live that's going to be their reality their reality is dominated by less and less not more and more yes um it's likely to be challenging, really challenging. But also what a lot of people by focusing on that don't see is that in previous collapsing civilizations, you do often see 20, 25% of the worst of humanity show up. Hmm. But you also see 75 to 80% of the best of humanity show up. People hmm. are sacrificial, they're, they're engaged in each other's lives. Hmm. Because we're all in it together and you and your hmm. neighbors or your, you know, hmm. the people in your community are in it together, most people, respond in very generous, compassionate ways and local mm. sorts of mm. ways. 
And so, for example, uh, you know, I'm sure you know this because it's your generation, an entire generation of sort of 15 to 35 year old young men, not just in the United States, but throughout the world, the industrial world, um, are profoundly addicted to internet gaming or internet porn or both. Mm -hmm. Well, that's mm -hmm. not going to happen when their communities need them. Hmm. They're going to be engaged because their communities need them. They're not going to be wasting time in front of a screen. Hmm. So, so I tend to focus on that, that young people, um, children, one of the things we know about previous collapsing civilizations is that that's when saints, sages, heroes, and sheroes hmm. are born. It's like the womb for hmm. those who, 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 uh, often are then mythologized in mm. you know, 100, 200 years later mm. um, because they were so exemplary in their leadership and mm. in their self-sacrifice and in their love and compassion um, in that process. So I, I, I think that collapse is already ongoing, that it's likely to be really, really challenging. And anybody who thinks that uh, our species couldn't possibly go extinct in the next 50 to 100 years isn't paying attention. We may last. I actually think that there's a decent chance that there will be pockets of humanity throughout the world that yeah. last, you know, for another million or two million years before some asteroid or super volcano or something takes yeah, us right. out. Because right. no mammal our size lasts forever. I mean, most right. mammals our size yeah. last at most three or four million years. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah. so that's sort of the approach. Uh, and, and I uh -huh. invite people huh. to really, especially young people, to really... Uh, get their hearts as well as their heads around certain things that are inevitable and don't invest. So that's why I, I have a, a whole series of things that I do video and otherwise where I talk about thus saith reality, thus saith, you know, what is reality telling us is inevitable is futile because hmm. you, you want to accept what's inevitable. Hmm. You want to not invest in what's futile, what's genuinely futile. And then you want to be able to discern what's pro-future and soul nourishing and then invest everything you got in what's pro-future and soul nourishing because mm -hmm. that's going to give you the most meaningful, joyous, a peaceful life in the midst of contraction and collapse. Yeah. Collapse is a difficult word because we think of it like this and it's almost never like that. It's, you know, it took Rome 320 years to right. collapse. It was a stair right. step. It's what John Michael yeah. Greer calls the long descent. Right. So, at any rate, so that's sort of where yeah, I yeah, it's, it's 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 wonderful to actually hear you reflect on this because I think you've done a lot more um, uh, kind of study of this topic and, but the the stroke the broad strokes that you're laying out, I feel like I'm living into with my life, right? Like the way that I've changed the course of my life to accord with what I was learning in these conversations, which. For me, more than any kind of fact or, you know, specifics about ecology was emotional yes. story, reality that I was just like faced with. Yes. And that I had to then reconsider the stories by which I was living my life. And yeah, for, for me, as you say, there's a kind of um, heroic possibility that I see in the story of collapse that like calls me forth into a more beautiful, more meaningful life. And that's sort of how I have found a way to meet collapse in my own existence, right? And it's actually revivified a lot of my day-to-day -day in a way that is beautiful. And I don't, and it's funny, like I don't, I was actually, I, I just shifted the inquiry of my podcast because I'm kind of tired of talking about collapse. 
Like it's not like, I kind of, I get it. Like, and like, I, 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 I also love like, you know, like this new piece around like energy and ecology and overshoot. Like I want, I want to learn that, but in general, like I'm more wanting to know, like, how can I be more present with the people in my life? Yes. Like, what does it really mean to be here and be human with each other? And it's like, that seems really amazing and hard and worth doing. And I know that in whatever world comes my way, I'm going to be grateful if I had spent my time doing that. Amen. And that seems, that's like, and, and then I can, and then there's, for me, I, I notice a sense of just like, like releasing of all of that, all of that complexity, right? That it's so easy for me to get invested into. It's just, floats away and i'm like here in the middle of rural vermont with 15 other humans trying to be happy without you know like living together and that's and that's that's it yeah well i wanted you to share more about that in your monastic experience and what you know how that's happening for you up there yeah. i i will say that i consider it graced with a capital g sort of uh, just the universe reality life yeah. racing connie and i have had this really weird lifestyle for 18 years. We've traveled North America. We live in other people's homes, usually somebody's second home or vacation home. We're there for a month or two or three at a time. Mm. And then we speak in churches and colleges and universities around that and meditation centers and others, you know, uh, within a two hour radius of wherever we happen to be living. So I'm speaking to you, for example, right now in Vicki Robbins house in uh, Langley, Washington <laughs> on, on Wigby Island because oh, amazing. Yeah, oh, cool. we're taking care of Vicki's cat. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, beautiful. But 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 by having wealthy people who have surplus housing hmm. that have offered us to stay for weeks or sometimes a few months at a time at no cost, that has allowed us to become independent scholars. I mean, I hmm. spent twenty thirty sometimes 40 or 50, but recently yeah. only 15 to 20 hours a week in totally. study of complexity and ecology and energy and collapse and whatever. And, um, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for the generosity of others who uh, are supporting what Connie and I are doing in this whole epic of evolution, sort of what we speak about, because Connie's a science writer. And, mm. and her passion is assisting trees and migrating, assisting mm. native trees and migrating north faster mm. than any other animal can possibly move its seeds. And so mm. it turns out that hundreds of species of plants and trees will go extinct, absolutely, unless mm. humans assist them in migrating wow. north or migrating south if you're in the southern hemisphere, but migrating wow. poleward. So it's holy work, building topsoil and planting trees, especially trees where you get the seeds a little bit further south and you plant mm. them a bit further north. Mm. This is holy, holy work. Yeah. And um, huh. so what we speak about is where science, inspiration, and sustainability intersect. Huh. But it's really only been the last seven years that we've been into collapse and this sort of thing. And by the grace of life, we've, I've been given uh, the opportunity to really massively study this stuff and interact yeah. with a lot of other people. Yeah. And many of, them, many of the people who I've interacted with and read are part of this post-Doom uh, conversation series. Yeah, but it's fascinating. One thing that comes to mind, too, is... Um, you know, I'm doing research for an ep a podcast episode on the topic of like Gen Z politics. Mm. Right? So that's like the generation after millennials, <clears throat> mostly, you know, people that are in college right now and younger. And at least according to this one researcher, their politics 
began with the assumption of the collapse of society. Yes. Right. And it's how do they respond to it? There's like a right leaning response that's more kind of about accelerationism and that is, you know, and then there's a more leftist response, which is a kind of like anarcho primitivism. But in any case, there's the, the, the younger generation without any kind of, as far as I can tell, very sophisticated, like understanding of energy systems or ecology or complexity just knows in their bones that this is destined for dissolution. Um, I'm curious, describe a little bit about your experience, your spiritual, like uh, one of the questions that I often ask is what spiritual tools, psychological resources, what have you found supportive or helpful? And in your situation, this monastic, I mean, monastery is a word that brings up for people something that yeah. may not be accurate in terms yeah, yeah. of your experience of what you all are doing there. So yeah. help, us, help us think and feel into what you mean by monastery. Sure. Yeah, well, the, the, probably like the quickest way to give you a sense of what life is like here is just to quickly go through the schedule, which I'm pretty good at. I can do quite quick. So that's um, great. You know, we, we, we have to be downstairs in the Zendo at 4.40 a.m. We chant for about an hour. Then we meditate in silence for an hour and a half. Then we have an hour of exercise. Then we have breakfast, which lasts for 45 minutes exactly. <laughs> then we have a work period during work weeks. We work from about like nine to 1 p.m. We have lunch, we have some chores. We have about two and a half hours of break. That's what I'm talking to you right now is on our break. Uh, and then we have an evening program, which is usually uh, an hour and a half kind of workshop or it could be more meditation and then followed by another hour and a half of silent meditation and then a 15 minute chant. And then we go to bed and do it all over again. What's cool about this place is, uh, you know, most monasteries that I'm aware of are, you know, they're, they're kind of just the only practice and technology they really leverage is meditation. Meditation is the primary thing we do here, but we also do a practice called circling, which is like interpersonal mm -hmm. meditation, relational meditation. We do some trauma work together. And all of this is held in the context of like the residents, the people who are training here are running a nonprofit. So like I, I have just as much complexity in my day to day as most people who are like working in a startup nonprofit, yes. which is quite different than most people's vision of a monastery is someplace that's just like sort of totally, you know, simple, like you're just making bread all day or I don't know what it is, but you know, so there's a lot of complex, we deal with a lot of complexity here. We may, we, used to make software that taught mindfulness in public schools, for instance. So a little bit more like modern than most monasteries end yeah. up being. Um, we're also not actually Buddhist. We're uh, basically post-traditional. We use somebody, uh, the pedagogy of somebody named Shinzen Young, who has created a whole approach to meditation inspired by the spirit of science. Everything is very methodical and kind of categorized and demystified. And it's um, all the definitions are, are very particular, you know, things like that. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, you know, what life is like here, just to give you a, a, a little sense. Yeah. yeah, that's fabulous. I'm so glad that you did that because one of the things, again, that I've appreciated about reading histories of the rise and mm. fall of civilization, Arnold Toynbee, uh, Oswald Spengler, uh, ben, mm. uh, Gamatia Tista Vico, and most of this was uh, I was introduced to through John Michael Greer, and he talks about the monastic form being perhaps the most resilient and yeah. stable form in contracting civilizations and societies and through dark ages in between civilizations. That, that's right. Well, so, and so the other piece to bring in is that 
the full name for the, this monastery is called Maple, which stands for the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. Beautiful. And the whole idea of it, the, the founder, whose uh, name is Soryu Foral, and he's just coming out of a two-month solitary retreat tomorrow, actually. So we're kind of like preparing to, to welcome him back into community life. Uh, the whole idea of it was that he acknowledged from a very young age that basically we were destroying the planet, destroying the possibility for life to continue um, as it is. And he saw exactly as you say, that monasteries were the most resilient form of human organization. He said, he, he will always say like, you know, civilizations rise and fall while these monasteries just continue on. Amen. It's amazing. Yes. It's incredible. And so yeah. perhaps we can create the same kinds of conditions here. Yeah, well, and it's not even a matter of perhaps we can create. I mean, you guys are creating and others are too. But it becomes, again, natural selection is that when the conditions, when the environmental conditions are such that monastic communities thrive where other forms of organization don't, yes. monasteries will be popping up like yeah. mushrooms all over. Yeah, the yeah. And we're already seeing this. Actually, there's a whole new wave of monasteries. I think I, I, I expect that we're just like the tip of the iceberg. I think that there will be many, 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 many more such kinds of organizations in the coming years. And I'm hearing, you know, various kinds of chatter about them emerging. It's really fascinating. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it, assuming that climate tipping points don't really wag out in the most severe ways, right. that's absolutely count onable. Um, yeah. And again, we learn this partly through history, but also through understanding evolution and what the conditions are that then allow for or facilitate the emergence, the title of your podcast, Emerge, but the, the emergence of forms of organization that thrive best in various yes. conditions. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. And, and I think, you know, for me, I talked to somebody um, on my podcast about collapse and they said that one way to think about it is that it's like falling down a hill, like a large hill. Right. And it might happen in fits and starts. Like you might fall down a portion and it might really bruise you. And then you'll stand up and you'll be like, all right, I'm okay. And then you'll fall down some more and you just keep going. You keep going. And one way he suggested to meet that challenge is just to walk to the bottom of the hill. Right. <laughs> just walk to the bottom of the hill. And, and there's a way in which I think that monastic training affords a little bit of that sensibility. Right. So many people in our culture are addicted to so much that the idea of, say, like, losing the ability to use Instagram for a week is anathema, right? <laughs> and so you can go and, and here, like we can just, just you know, degrow our life essentially. And, you know, I will tell you, you know, from personal experience, you can be happier than you would imagine possible doing nothing for a week, nothing. And so that, even just that should reorient anybody's relationship to like things. So any, any of those three, human nature, the big picture or impermanence and death that you want to uh, just share anything on. Yeah. I mean, for me, the impermanence and death one is uh, it's really fascinating to me because, you know, in Buddhism, which is the, the tradition that I mostly have practiced in, that's like, it's supposed to be a daily recollection. You know, you say something like, I remember that, my body is subject to aging and death. And thus I practice, you know, to work out my salvation or whatever, however you want to phrase it. And uh, for me, as somebody who was like practicing when they were like 25 years old, I was always thinking like, yeah, 
I guess, but you know, I got a lot of time. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Maybe we'll invent some kind of cure for death uh, <laughs> by the time I get real old, like 50 years old or something. <laughs> What's that? Well, what I was thinking Ray, Ray Kurzweil certainly. Uh, yeah. Is, some people are still going for that. Yeah, That's exactly, a fun yeah. fantasy to live in um, yeah. perhaps, but, uh, but, but the, the way that collapse has acted as a forcing function for me to contemplate my own demise has been incredible. And I think that's been a large part of what has allowed me to kind of re-enter my life in this second simplicity that I find myself in where it's just like, oh, who am I with? Who's here? Can I be with you? You know, and, and so what I've, what I've found is that actually those, those recollections of death have become much more potentiated knowing what I now know about what we're talking about. And I've also added in uh, recollection about the impermanence of our civilization as a daily recollection, just to kind of remember. At this point, I think it's kind of like you, I, I, I no longer take it for granted. It's very much like I go and walk around or I, if I'm in an airport, everything just seems like, I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, look at this house of cards. <laughs> it's so incredible. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And um, yeah, so that, 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 it's been interesting for me, I think, as somebody who's on the younger end of the spectrum to, to, to really feel like perhaps death is actually something coming much sooner than I would have thought even five years ago. Back when you were talking about voluntarily walking to the bottom of the hill reminded yeah. me of one of my favorite books by John Michael Greer, which is actually a, uh, some of his blog posts that didn't make it into because mm. he posted the art on the Archdruid report every Wednesday night for like 11 years, he posted on the Archdruid report. And there were like 50, 60,000 of us that waited wow. to see his posts uh, every Wednesday night. And I've recorded like 400 of them, I think. Wow. Um, but one of his books is titled collapse now and avoid the rush. Huh. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. The best exactly. of good report. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. That that sense of of being so not just at peace with reality, but joyously celebrational of reality yeah. as it yeah. really is, including its challenges, including its death and its end. This being at peace with mortality, with death, with impermanence is is utterly invaluable. It's one of the first mm. steps that I encourage. But again, at people your age, people as younger, 20 somethings don't. I mean, I, I had a, I was given a gift that when I was 21 years old or 20, maybe I was 20 years old. I was on top of a mountain outside of Frankfurt, Germany, and, mm. you know, had one of the, you know, most amazing mystical experiences of my life on the top mm. of this mountain, mm. um, where I was given a vision of my death, even if I lived a hundred years and it was totally mm. life changing. I, you know, mm. most 20, 21 year olds don't think about mortality. Yeah. And, um, and I was, I was given that gift uh, and it's made a huge difference. So I did take a training with Joanna Macy where we did a, some exercises in deep time. Yes. And there's something in that, I think, that still resonates for me. Like sometimes I'll be meditating and I'll just get the perception of myself as that part of the earth that breathes like this. Yes. And there's, and so it's less about a kind of a temporal cosmology and more a sense of like, yes. I am not so different than 
any of this that I see. And, and there's a great piece in that for me. In coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, climate breakdown, et cetera, have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? Like what, what's opened up for you on the other side of the post-doom doorway? There is this simplicity of, of being human that I've, at least for the time being, seemed to find myself in where it's like, yeah, you know, this is going to end. But here we are now and we get to be alive and there's a kind of gift, a gratefulness in that um, that's extremely sweet. I feel like it's more sweet than it ever was before. Yeah. I actually haven't had that thought before, but it does seem that way. Like that, that, that seems true to me. Yeah. Um, like more precious. Well, last question. Um, what's your take? The, it, it really is the question that you asked me before that I refused to ask. And, <laughs> you know, what's your take on what's beyond our control? Like, mm. and where we still can make a difference individually or collectively. In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but then what still is possible? I haven't read some of the things that you've recommended today. And so I might need to recalibrate my vision of what's possible based on what I have yet to learn. But I do think that people that I see you talking to, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not so familiar with your work to know whether or not you account for the role that exponential technology could play as it encounters some of these collapse dynamics. But frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. I'm unsure what the future is going to bring. Uh, maybe it's a, a lack of understanding, but it's also just a, uh, my, my information ecology is, is perhaps a little bit too wide. Like I see things from so many different information sources. I see so much technology that's being created that seems like it might solve particular dynamics and people are doing this and people are doing that. And so I don't know what's possible, but what I, what I do know is worth dedicating our time to is, is um, rebuilding the social networks that exist in locations like where I grew up in upstate New York. And that's what I, I plan on doing when and if I leave the monastery, right? It's just sort of like, weaving those social ties together so that, you know, um, no matter what happens, we go through it together. Yeah. And so I think that no matter what your vision of the future is, we're going to be better off if we have strong pro-social groups that are thinking and feeling and responding to the world together. And that's really for me, like the only thing that I feel totally confident investing in. It's yeah. like the, 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 the human skills in how to do that. So for me, that means uh, healing, healing my trauma, um, you know, waking up, growing up, cleaning up. Uh, and then the actual like time spent in intimacy working together that builds those kinds of groups. So that's really, you know, that's all yeah. that feels like it's definitely worth doing. <laughs> Everything else to me seems like a crapshoot. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm so with you on that. Huh. I'm glad you mentioned the word technology because we didn't touch on that before when we were talking about energy and ecology and overshoot. 
Um, another resource that I would recommend, uh, mm. just the summary. You don't even have to read the whole book. The summary, he's got a four-page summary that's absolutely fabulous, mm. but it's called Technofix, Why mm. Technology Won't sa Save Us or the Environment. And it's by Joyce and Michael Hausman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing their last name right, mm. but um, you know they got dozens of people that, including Richard Heinberg and many of the other people that are sort of on the forefront of these issues. It turns out that human-centered technology, technology mm. that benefits us, mm. but that is harmful or uh, or or toxic or in mm. some cases just even neutral but if it doesn't take into well into consideration the well-being of other species so it's anthropocentric human-centered technology always creates more problems than it solves it just does it over time the only forms of yes. technology and, and I and I encourage anybody who is not sure about that find me two examples that are yeah. counterexamples I haven't, I put that challenge out for quite a few months. I've never had anybody been able to do that, even starting with fire or spears. Hmm. So human-centered technologies always create more problems than they solve. And uh, it turns out that uh, technologies need energy. And you, when you start unpacking the energy component. Yeah. Well, I, I want to be clear. I didn't just mean like uh, physical material technology. I also mean social technologies yes, exactly. right? and things like that. I, I use that more broadly, like technique, like ways of being together would be technologies That's great. for me. So That's um, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of what you're saying, but. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole realm of biomimicry and mimicking the wisdom right. of these technologies. Right. There's lots nature. of different ways to design technology. I mean, that's one of the things that Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about is how do we design technology in a way that accounts for its consequences. Yes, and those kinds of pro-social technologies, if what you mean by technology mm -hmm. includes those social dynamics, yeah, yes. there's, there's, there are profound ways of organizing ourselves yes. to, for example, elicit collective intelligence rather That's than right. like stupidity. Um, That's right. And uh, the emergence of something genuinely novel, but genuinely life-centered pro-future. Yeah, and that's what I hear Daniel Schmachtenberger explicitly calling for. Is I, I, my understanding is more complexity in terms of the social organism than in terms of the energy system. Any final things you want to say before we give this one a close? You know, the, right now the snow is falling here in Vermont, and it's just so beautiful. And I, this, this like fog rolling through the hills, and I'm looking out <laughs> into the trees. And it's funny, like this whole conversation, I think I've just, there's been a sort of silence in me and, and uh, I, th there's a way in which I don't care about these ideas like I used to. And there's a part of me that's ashamed of that. Mm. And there's a part of me that feels like that's actually the right move now is just to like live in a way where I, I know, but I don't care or something. It's, I haven't really worked it out, but I'm noticing this kind of strange position I find myself in at the end of this conversation. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.